listening to sermons from South Point Locust Grove, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpoint.org. Man, Wednesday night, if you were here or you were serving in any capacity, thank you guys so much. Um, Our Thanksgiving outreach was incredibly successful, at least by the way that we can measure it. And we pray that God might use uh, that small means in mighty ways in his kingdom here uh, in Locust Grove, in Jackson, and Hampton, and McDonough, and all the other cities that were touched as a result, the people that received meals. We packaged uh, around 480 meals on Wednesday evening, and those were sent by some of you uh, to various people around here. They received gospel tracts. They were prayed for by many of you, and, uh, and we pray that God would, would yield a tremendous fruit by uh, the efforts of his people. And so thank you all for the ways that you participated that, in that. Second, uh, this is Family Worship Sunday, so that means that there are several uh, little kids in here that aren't usually with us, and we just celebrate that together as a family this morning. So you may hear uh, something to the left or right of you that you wouldn't normally hear, and that is okay. So we're just going to give one another a lot of grace, and especially mom and, and dads here this morning that feel a little nervous because their kids are being loud. It's all good. Uh, we're the family of God, and we want to care for one another really well, and we want to be together as we hear God's word together, young and old. And then finally, Uh, Just a comment about myself. If you know me at all, you know that I am not a sports guy in any way. I hardly ever understand sports references. Uh, You know, preachers love sports references because it appeals to to the masses. And I'm always that guy that's like, I have no idea what they're saying. So when Michael and Mark are talking about, like, you know, the greatest basketball player ever lived is... I'm like, I, I don't know. I, I, I have no idea. I can't get into that fight. And so whoever I want to be on my good side that day, I usually agree with them. But here's what I will say. My wife went to Auburn, so that automatically makes me an Auburn fan. Okay? That's just what I am. I say War Eagle even though I really don't know anything about Auburn. But occasionally, I will get into a game. And last night, I did right before my daughter went to bed. And so I was refreshing. We couldn't get the game on the TV, so I was just refreshing Google over and over again, like second by second. It was time to take my five-year-old to bed, and so we did our nightly ritual. I prayed with her. We read the Bible, and then as soon as I felt like she was out, I just started refreshing yet again. And I was just like, man, we are really, we're going to pull this thing out. We're, we're going to do this. Auburn is going to win. I just, I just know Auburn's going to win. And as the fourth quarter comes to an end, probably a lot of you know it, if you are sports people, um, you know, I just, I just knew that we were going to win. But it's 10 to 0 at this point in the fourth quarter. There's only minutes left on the clock. Auburn has the game, and all of a sudden, the tied game, it, it becomes a tied game. And I was just like, what in the world is going on? And so overtime one comes, it was 17 to 17. Overtime two comes, it's 20 to 20. And at this point, I'm thinking, okay, I I knew Auburn was going to win, and now I'm hoping that Auburn is going to win. Overtime three, 22 to 22, hoping even more. Overtime four, 24 to 22. I don't even know if that's how you say it, but you get my gist, right? 
Hope is gone. Alabama has now won. And we need no comments about that. I went from knowing that Auburn was going to win to hoping that Auburn was going to win to realizing that Auburn had lost. And that is typically how we think about hope. That's typically how we communicate about hope, something that we really desire to happen in the future. Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. Hope for us typically means that we aren't quite sure, but we really hope this thing is going to happen. But here's what I want us to see in the text this morning, that the Bible typically speaks about hope in a different way. Because when the Bible talks about hope, it speaks about being confident, sure, unchanging, knowing as a matter of fact about something in the future. And so as we get into our text this morning, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, you can turn there with me if you have a Bible, access to one, verses 13 through 18. I want us to see that God's work in the past and his promises for the future bring us hope today. And we're going we're gonna to unpack that word hope. It, it is real. It is lasting. It's sure and it's confident. And if you're able, would you stand with me as I read God's word this morning as, just a, as a way of honoring God in his word? 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, again, verses 13 through 18. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Verse 18, therefore, encourage one another with these words. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. In order for us to operate with biblical hope today, we need to kind of work a bit backwards. So first we see in verses 13 and 14, God's work in the past. Now, since we're just dropping into this passage for our Advent series, we need some help with the media context. Most of us are unfamiliar exactly with what's going on as Paul writes this first Thessalonians, as he writes the letter to the church at Thessalonica. And for those of you who are uh, new to South Point, perhaps um, you, know, you haven't been with us for an Advent season, we typically pause uh, our, our normal preaching calendar for Advent, which is the four Sundays leading up to Christmas. And, uh, and we, we, just, we celebrate Advent. Advent just literally means a coming or an arrival. And for the Christian, we celebrate during this time the coming of Christ, his birth. This year, uh, some of you may have already noticed that our series is called A Tale of Two Advents. So we are not only going to be looking at the coming of Christ and his birth, but we are also going to be looking forward to his second coming when he will come again for his church. And we live as 
God's people in the time between the two. Jesus has already come. We know that. He's lived on this earth. He lived a perfect life, in fact. He died a death that you and I deserve to die. On the cross, he was buried and he was resurrected on the third day. He ascended to the Father and is at his right hand. He did that 40 days later. And he will one day come again. Now, the Thessalonians, this church that Paul is writing to, they lived in the same age. They just lived 2,000 years closer to Jesus' actual birth than we do. But in this letter, Paul is writing to a people that he was actually with, physically present with, for a really short time. And what had happened, as he was ministering to the people in Thessalonica, uh, some, some bad things started happening. Some persecution started happening to the church. And it was best for Paul and his missionary team to just head on out and minister somewhere else. And so as he gets to Corinth, he begins to write a letter to this church. And he starts writing uh, to this people on things that he thinks that they might have missed in some of his short teaching. Things like how to live holy lives, how to grow in sanctification, how to keep uh, from sexual immorality. And in verse 13, where we pick up today, Paul is addressing a specific concern that many in the church are having regarding death. And probably as we read that text this morning already, you're thinking, how in the world does this have anything to do with Christmas? But the church in Thessalonica was having a really difficult time dealing with death. Look there with me in the, in the Bible. Paul says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. Because some of their Christian brothers and sisters had died, or as Paul says, fallen asleep since Paul had less, left, and they felt absolutely hopeless. Now, just want to pause for a second. This isn't the point of what the Apostle Paul is communicating to them because he's actually pushing them forward to the hope that they are to have in the risen Lord Jesus Christ. But I don't want you to miss this. Paul is saying that a right understanding of the Word of God is the difference between having hope and having no hope. You see that there in the text? It can be the difference between grieving as others who have no hope and grieving as one who has hope. Because Paul is writing to a group of Christians, those who are in the faith, those who believe the gospel, those that have been saved, have been given new hearts, and they should be the people like we should be the people who are able to have hope like no one else. And yet they had a wrong understanding of God's word and it actually left them feeling hopeless. A right understanding of God's word is the difference between having hope and having no hope. Hope won't take the grief away. The Apostle Paul is clear. It's real. It's to be experienced, but it will change how you grieve. That's the hope that we have in Christ. And so Paul draws the Thessalonians' attention to God's work in the past. We can't miss this. Brother and sister, if you find yourself doubting the work of God in your life in this season, take encouragement to find what God has already done. I love the honesty of Asaph in Psalm 77. He begins to look at his life and those around him, and he sees, man, my life 
is full of trouble. My spirits are down, and I don't know what to do about this. And so Asaph just starts to question God. God, have you removed your hand from me? Have you taken the compassion that you once had given me in full measure? Have you just taken it away? God, have you stopped loving me? And I think if we're honest as the people of God with one another this morning, we would say whether you're feeling that or not in this moment, that you certainly have experienced seasons like that in your life. Anybody can attest to that? That you can understand what Asaph is feeling, that God, it, it just feels like he's removed his kind hand from me at this moment. Asaph, not denying his feelings or thoughts on the matter, though, says, here's what I'm going to do. I have these thoughts, and they're real. I feel like God has taken his hand off of me, but I'm going to appeal to the years of the right hand of the Most High. Meaning, I'm going to look at the times in the past when God has absolutely exerted his power for me, upon me, and those that I know. He says, I'm going to remember when you, God, redeemed your people from the bondage of the Egyptians. How you led your people through the leadership of Moses and Aaron. How you continued to bring blessing after blessing to all of Abraham's children. So if you and I will stop in the middle of our hopelessness and remember the work of the God in the past, if we will reorient ourselves toward God and his word, the scripture is clear. We will certainly have more hope. We will grow in biblical hope. And here's the beautiful thing. We have something even more profound to look back to than even the Old Testament saints did, right? Verse 14, look there with me. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. What do we have even more sure than the Old Testament saints of old had? We look to the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If there ever was a clear moment of God's power working on behalf of his children, it is certainly the cross. It's certainly Jesus' death. It's certainly his burial. And it's certainly his resurrection on the third day. Listen, as you've get gotten into all of the decor, Dana and I were just having a conversation before the service began on when do you put up your Christmas tree. Mine's up. It's undecorated, but lights have been on my house for a month now. As you get into this season with all the decor, all of the Advent readings that I hope that you and your family would participate in, as you you get into all the celebrating that we give ourselves to over the next several weeks, don't think of those things as ends of themselves, but as means to an end. What do I mean by that? I, I want us to think about those as opportunities to encourage confidence in who Jesus is and what he has done in our homes, in our workplaces, in our families' lives, in our DNA groups, in our life groups. Paul is saying to the Thessalonians, those who have previously died, they too will be resurrected again and they should have a tremendous hope because of Jesus' own resurrection. And Jesus' resurrection is the very proof of it. 
Biblical hope is birthed through remembering God's work in the past. Let's not forget that, church. Biblical hope is birthed through remembering God's work in the past. And second, biblical hope is found in God's future promises. The Thessalonians had been taught some precious truths while Paul and his missionary team was present among them. After all, like I mentioned earlier, they had already believed the gospel. But the Greek culture that they found themselves in was quite pessimistic about death and the afterlife. But for the Christian in Thessalonica, they were excited about the glorious return of Christ. What they had gotten mixed up with as they were listening to the things of the culture and hearing about the glorious return of Christ, they thought that those in Christ who had already passed away were going to miss out on this glorious return. They had been thinking, man, this is how our culture has influenced us, but they weren't seeing it as paired with the word of God. Paul writes to them to say, this is certainly not the case. Your brothers and sisters that have already died and passed on, they too will be resurrected. They will be able to see the return of Christ. In fact, verse 16, we see that those dead in Christ will not rise later, but they will rise first. Now, I know that some of you this morning may be thinking about death, whether it feels like it's looming closer than ever before or because a loved one recently passed, or because someone in your life is extremely sick. So for some of you, death is actually on your mind. But I would venture to say, other than me uh, bringing a biblical text about death before us this morning, that it wasn't really on our mind when we came in to hear an Advent sermon at church. In fact, I think it's quite difficult for us to relate to to the Thessalonians in this sense. Why? Because it's hard for those of us who generally have good health, good jobs, decent finances to think about such matters. In one case, it's It's definitely difficult for us to resonate with the Thessalonians because none of us are dealing with any sort of religious persecution, especially religious persecution that might lead to death. There is something that feels very stable here, doesn't it? It just feels like today is going to happen and tomorrow is going to happen too and we're going to carry on with the same life that we carried on with today and so we just don't think much about tomorrow except worried if we're going to make more money tomorrow or if we're going to go shopping or whatever we're going to find ourselves doing. We don't think about the life to come much because we are so extremely happy with the life that is. And don't get me wrong, I don't think that that's inherently a bad thing. It just makes it difficult for us to relate to a people like this. But just like the Thessalonians, we too need to hear about our future hope in the heavenly places. We need to hear about our future hope in Christ Jesus. We need to hear that it is grounded in the very glory of Christ. We need something that would get our eyes off of the present circumstances and help us to fix our eyes on King Jesus, who's the author and perfecter of our faith. Could the church say amen? We need something to get our eyes off of these temporary things and to help us fix ourselves on Christ Jesus. 
But I know without a shadow of a doubt that every one of us need help with moving our eyes from the temporal to the eternal. I know that. That all of us should come to grips with the reality of our eternality sooner or later. That those of you in this room who have never before today seen your sin in light of a holy God would do that today and that you would trust in Christ Jesus by faith so that your eternal standing with that God would be secure. And that those of us in this room who have already been chosen by Christ, secured in Christ, that we would be reminded that we are kept eternally. We need to hear about that, right? We need to hear about that. Now, before we get into the thick of these next few verses, I want you to be aware that it is only three verses. And you'll see why I say that in just a minute. It's only three verses. We are not about to build a theology of the end times right here. For those of you who like big theological words, we are not about to build our entire eschatology in these three verses. But nevertheless, we can certainly be informed by them. The tone of Paul's response to the Thessalonians here about death and Christ's imminent return is less doctrinal and more pastoral. I need you to hear that as we get into the next three verses. So if you're intrigued with these three verses and you want to do some additional studying, which I would encourage you to do, take your Bible, read through the text, begin to underline and circle things that seem to repeat or things that you see as uh, potentially uh, building a theme I want you to circle those things. I want you to use 1 Corinthians chapter 15 as a reference. I want you to read through Matthew chapter 24. I want you to go to Daniel chapter 7 and see how it all fits together. But I'm not going to get into the weeds this morning. So if you email me tomorrow, which is fine if you do, chris at southpoint.org, and you say, why didn't you deal with this? I would say, it's not that I don't care about the theology of the end times. It's that this is not what the Apostle Paul was trying to communicate when he wrote these three verses, okay? I'm not saying that the weeds are unimportant or that a thorough look into exactly how the rapture of God's church will happen or take place is not helpful. I'm not saying anything like that. I'm not going to get into the weeds on that because this sermon is on hope. And more than this sermon being on hope, that is exactly what the Apostle Paul was trying to communicate. Do you got my drift? You get my drift? Got it. Okay. For some reason, though, when we start talking about the end times, we pull out our charts and our graphs, and we pull out the Left Behind series that we haven't looked at since the early 90s. We pull that off our bookshelves, and we start thinking, man, this is exactly how it's all going to unfold, right? And you know what happens when we start thinking like that? I don't know about you, but we start to get extremely paranoid and worried and fearful about tomorrow. When the Apostle Paul and other writers in the New Testament, Jesus himself, talk about the end times in a way that should drive us to incredible hope. When I was in Bible college, my roommate, who shared a room with me, uh, we had taken a nap one afternoon. I was on the top bunk. He was on the bottom, and I didn't want to disturb him. I, I had to get to work, and so I just kind of changed into my, um, 
valet uniform, my valet boy uniform as they called it, put my vest on, took my other clothes, put them right back up there, put the shoes that I was wearing back up on my bed. I jump out. I get on out of the room. He wakes up. I didn't tell him that I was going to work. He looks up on the bed. He sees all my clothes. He sees the shoes right there. And what does he think? The rapture. You all know it. He goes out the hallway, and just would you have it, our next-door neighbors, they weren't in their room either. And he just knew that he had been left behind. And could I tell you that guy was driven to more fear than you could possibly imagine in that moment? I'm telling you that when the New Testament writers write about the, the end times, we are supposed to be driven to an incredible amount of hope. Fear is not to be the state of the Christ follower. Paul was writing to give this people hope. I'm preaching so that you would have hope. And hope isn't found in a timeline. It's found in the risen Savior who is coming again. Do you hear me? We're supposed to read these next three verses. I'm getting there. I'm building towards those three verses. And we're supposed to say, praise God. Jesus is going to return and it is going to be loud when he does. And the dead in Christ are going to raise first, and it is going to be glorious. Let's look at verse 15. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, we who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Go with me. It's in the middle of this verse. Paul addresses the hopelessness of the Thessalonians. Not only do you have a future hope in general because it is rooted in the gospel, in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, what God has done in the past, but now you can see that not only will your loved ones in Christ who have previously died not miss on this calling of God's elect, but they will, in fact, precede those who are alive. Now, we don't know who of the Christians will still be alive when Jesus Christ returns. Paul assumed, and rightly so, he had no reason not to, that it could have been in their lifetime, and so should we. Regardless, those who had fallen asleep would not miss out from this event, and they would actually get into the action first. The Thessalonians knew that those who, weren't, who were asleep weren't actually asleep. In fact, their souls were already with Christ, but they wondered if their whole bodies, their resurrected selves, their physical selves would miss out on this event Indeed, Paul says they would not. Now, when Paul says here at the beginning of verse 15 that we declare to you by a word from the Lord, I think what is happening here is that he's seeing himself as an interpreter of what Jesus Christ has already communicated and what Old Testament prophets have also said. Because what he writes here looks really close to what Jesus himself says in Matthew chapter 24. I have it on the screen here, verse 30 and 31. There Jesus said, Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Now, Jump down there in Matthew chapter 24 to verse 40. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Okay? If you're still in with in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, look at verse 16 and 17 with me and notice the similarities. 
for the Lord himself will descend, so Christ is returning here, from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. And I hope that that gives you an idea of what Paul is possibly alluding to. Here's what we see clearly here in the text. Paul is first speaking to the Thessalonians, the church at Thessalonica, to encourage them in their hopeless, hopelessness. He does not want this church to be without hope. You as a Christ follower should not be without hope. You need not be concerned, he says. Those who are alive at the return of Christ will have no advantage over those who are asleep. All will be gathered, the dead first, to meet the Lord in the air. Now, this is not a subtle event. We also see that there in the text. It's not one in which the rest of the world does not know about. It's loud and it's public. These descriptors could be the same thing or three distinct calls. We only have one other recording of an archangel uh, in Scripture. That's of Michael in Jude 9, this trumpet of God. It's a cry of command. Whatever is going on here is like a battle cry, that the Lord's army would come together standing strong. Paul does not speak here about what will come of unbelievers at this time. That's not his point again. We just know that it's loud. There's no doubt about that. Everybody got the clarity of what's happening so far in the text? The phrase caught up, in verse 17, is the one time that this idea of the rapture is used explicitly in the New Testament, bringing with it the idea of being taken by force or being snatched away. Now, look there in verse 17. Do you see that word meet there towards the end? This may be the most fascinating word in this entire passage because this word in the Greek was a really technical term. It connotes as one commentary wrote, the meeting of a delegation of citizens from a city with an arriving dignitary in order to accord that visitor proper respect and honor by escorting him back into the city. So here's the deal. It would have been common in that day and time for select citizens to come outside of the city to welcome an official and accompany them back into the city. John Chrysostom an early church father, they often referred to him as Golden Mouth because of his preaching abilities, picked up on that particular word. And he said, for when a king drives into a city, those who are honorable go out to meet him, but the condemned await a judge within. Although there are varying views as to what is happening at this particular time in redemptive history with these verses... Some would say that Christ is gathering his church to take them out of the world and into the heavenly places. But if this particular word was played out, it would serve to show us that those Christians who are alive and deceased are meeting Christ in the clouds to welcome him to earth as he descends. But remember, these are just three verses. They're not meant to build our entire eschatology around. They are meant to give us an incredible hope. They're meant to show us that those who were dead in Christ would not miss out on Christ's return. And let us not miss it. Paul wants us to see that biblical hope is fueled by God's future promises. It's fueled 
and it's given fuel to our thoughts of the glorious Christ returning for his bride. Don't miss this. Christ was raised from the dead, and we know that. It is this truth that we are certain, and he is coming again. Paul writes elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 15 that at Christ's coming, those who belong to Christ will be resurrected. He goes on to say in verse 24, you see it on the screen, Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son of himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Listen, as you hear those words this morning, whether you leave here this morning turning from your sinful, worldly ways and surrendering yourself to the rule and reign of Christ Jesus, whether you do that today or you never do it in this life, there will come a day, the scripture is clear, that you will certainly be put in subjection under this Christ. And on that day, it will be too late to turn. Turn towards him today while it is still today. Experience biblical hope, hope that is found in God's work in the past, his future promises. And finally, I want us to see that we should, as the followers of Christ, have hope today. Hope today. Verse 18 is short and sweet. You thought that was wordy? This is not. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. One commentator said, it's not just a matter of hearing and heeding what Paul said. They were to participate in their own healing. Christians are the only ones, you see, who can look squarely at death and have hope. Hope, not because death doesn't sting for Christians, because it certainly still does. Hope, not because grief doesn't still come for Christians because it still does. But hope, because for the Christian, it's grounded in God's work in the past. Jesus Christ's life, death, burial, and resurrection. And it is fueled by God's promises for the future that Jesus Christ is returning again for his church. And his people will certainly be resurrected, those who are alive and those who have already been dead. So Christian, what does it look like for you to encourage other with these words? Because that is what Paul is driving the Thessalonians to do. You've heard all of this. You've been told that you should have hope. Now encourage one another with these words. Instead of answering how you should do that for you. I'm going to ask you three questions. But first consider this. The word encourage is the Greek word parakaleo. And it is used 105 times in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul in his letters uses it over 50. Now many of us know that Paul was 
given a thorn in the flesh. Have you ever heard that before? That he was given that thing by Jesus, and we don't know exactly what the thorn in the flesh was. Certainly, many people have speculated as to what they think Paul had, but here's what we know. We know that it was something that he dealt with, he says, he writes about this, to keep him from exalting himself. He said it was a messenger of Satan used to torment him. And about this thorn in his flesh, it says in 2 Corinthians 12, 8, that he parakaleoed Jesus three times that it might leave him. So I want you to put those things together. We can only imagine what those three urging parakaleo prayers must have sounded like between him and the risen Jesus. Would you just take this away from me? Would you please remove this thorn from my flesh? It is killing me. It is tormenting me. Would you please remove it? The way in which the Apostle Paul called on God, the way in which he there encouraged the Lord to remove it from him, is the way that we are told to comfort parakaleo others with gospel hope. We're to urge them. We're to implore them. Plead with friends and family members to know and believe the gospel. Encourage brothers and sisters in this family, in the family of God, to rely and rest on biblical hope. The past work of God, His future promises so that you might have hope today and have it secure. Hope that is grounded in the work of Jesus Christ and that is confidently expecting His return. So, the three questions. What are they? First is this. Are you resting in God's previous or past work? Do you believe what he said in the Bible to be true? Specifically, do you believe that Jesus Christ is who he said he is? That he lived a life that you and I could not live because of us being born in and to a sin nature? That he died at the, de- at the hands of angry men, he died a death on the cross that you and I deserve to die, that he was buried and that he was resurrected on the third day. Do you believe in God's past work? Second, are you hopeful for Christ's promised return? And this is what I want us to think hard and long about as God's people. Are we so accustomed to thinking about our lives in today and now? Are we so fixed on the temporal that it's so difficult for us to to think about anything eternal? Are you hopeful of Christ's promised return? And third, how might you encourage those around you in hope today? How might you do that today? How might you encourage others after the gathering? How might you encourage your family members as you leave here today or those that you'll interact with this afternoon? How might you find yourself interacting with your life groups and DNA groups as a result of the hope that we have in Christ Jesus? And so as we do that this week, as you interact with partners in this church, family members in this house, and you see and hear of sin in their lives, in your life, in my life, Would you parakaleo one another? Would you urge one another? Would you encourage one another as Paul urged the risen Christ? Look at what he's done. As you hear of hopelessness, would you parakaleo them to look to Christ and his promised return? 
Would you parakaleo one another in this family to lift our eyes off the temporal and onto the eternal? That's my challenge for us this morning. In the 1950s, Dr. Kurt Richter performed a, a really controversial experiment with some rats. He may have heard of this study. What Dr. Richter did was he placed a whole bunch of rats in a pool of water to test how long they would be able to tread. And you know what he found? He found that the average rat was able to tread water for 15 whole minutes before they would begin to sink and drown. Well, Dr. Richter, he, he said, hey, I want to do something else. There, it's not just a really sad experiment. It wasn't just to see how long it would take for a rat to drown. But what he wanted to do was another step. And so as these rats would, be, would tread water for 15 minutes and they would see, the team of researchers would see the rats about to drown or about to sink under the water, they would grab them up they would dry the rats off, and they would let them rest for a few minutes. That was so kind of them. After letting them rest for just a few minutes, they would put the rats back into the pool of water for another go-around. Now, on the second time around, how long do you think that they were able to tread water? Like another 15 minutes? 10 minutes? 30 minutes. Somebody's going higher. Anybody else? Well, they were able to tread for another 60 hours. 60 hours. The rats were able to swim an incredibly long time on the basis of having been previously rescued. Now, the rats were not hopeful like I was for Auburn to pull it out in the end based on nothing but a hope and a feeling. We aren't just hopeful like the rats, knowing that we have just been rescued once, though, right? Thinking, hoping, praying that it might happen again. No, the Christ follower has a certain expectation that is founded in God's work in the past and is fueled by God's promises for the future that Christ has not only rescued us once, but that he is coming again for his bride, and that is sure. So how long do you think that we'll be able to persevere in this life and on this earth? We'll be able to keep going until the risen Christ returns for his bride or he calls us home to glory. I want you to feel the weight of that this morning, dear Christian, knowing that we have an, a tremendous hope in the risen Christ. In just a moment, I'm going to invite the family of God, those of you who have placed your faith in Christ Jesus to partake in communion. And here's what I'm asking you as the family of God to do. Whoever is with you, if you're by yourself or you're praying with individuals in your family or church members, I want you to be reminded of the hope that we have in Christ, that our hope looks back on what God has done in Christ for rescuing the sinners like you and I, and also that we are to be confidently expecting Christ Jesus' second return.
So I'm going to pray. And two things. If you've never trusted in Christ Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, I would urge, I would parakaleo you to do that today. Would you find that biblical hope that is lasting and sure? And second, if you are already in Christ, I pray that God would do an incredible work of assuring you of that hope in Christ this morning. That he would give you more hope than you ever thought or imagined. And that you would able to, uh, that you would be able to know that you can endure and persevere the trials of this life because Christ Jesus is certain to return. Let's pray.